What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Your branding is the face of your business. Make a great impression with creative professional designs from 99designs. Visit 99designs.com slash smart and get a power pack upgrade for free the podcast where we talk to smart people but not necessarily done by smart people that is an awesome question this one goes down probably on one of my top five hey i like nutrition i like to eat food this is the coolest thing ever we're gonna do this forever i wish i paid more attention in that class you know i'm gonna be honest i don't understand that as a man i just i don't get it Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris and John here, as usual, have an awesome one for you today. And it was so much fun recording because today we are talking about the power of two people, creative pairs, as they call them these days. Creative pairs, as in John and I putting this podcast together, bouncing ideas off each other, using motivation, tension, all of those things to create this podcast. It was a lot of fun learning about what goes into that and why sometimes two is the magic number. Think about Lennon and McCartney, Wozniak and Jobs, Orville and Wilbur Wright. There's reasons why two people tend to do better than one or three or more. This week we interview Josh Shank. Josh is a curator, essayist, and author. His magazine pieces include cover stories in Harper's Time and The Atlantic, where his essay, What Makes Us Happy, was a most read article in the history of the magazine's website. Josh is the author of the new book, Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. John and I both actually had a, a chance to sit down and really soak this book up and read it well in advance. And it was just so interesting, the things he points out, how relevant they were for us, how insightful they are in the creative process. I highly recommend it. Check out the link at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Connect with us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Let us know what you think. And if you like it, include Josh in there. He's at Joshua Wolf Shank. I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you. 
Also, make sure you sign up for a newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. There's a few links there. Have some great stuff coming up, and that is where we are going to announce it. Here it is, an interview with Josh Shank. Well, Josh, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. And first, I wanted to say I, I got a chance to read your book in advance. You know, I read a lot of books. We interview a lot of people. Honestly, absolutely incredible. I, I love this topic. I love Powers of Two. As we were just talking about creative pairs, given that John and I created this podcast, is something that's really close to my heart. So I just wanted to say thanks. This is a fantastic book. Right on, man. That's that's great to hear. It's, uh, you know, one toils in not obscurity, but... Uh... I you know, definitely was many years in the making and this book is meant to be read. It's meant to affect people. It's meant to be start conversations. And unlike, you know, some works of art or literature where, you know, someone feels like it's done and then you present it to, to the world. This, this is a case where it's only done when I have conversations like the one I'm having with you. That's the, that was the point from the beginning. And I, I I'm also especially glad when I hear that it feels relevant to people who are actually doing what you're doing, which is working in partnership. It is in incredibly relevant. And there are things that I'm going to bring up that, I mean, I was reading it and John read it as well. And we both just mind blown sometimes on the clarity and the way you pointed things out. And also the fact that creative pairs, it's not always easy, especially in the instance of John and I, where we've known each other for so long. There's a friendship on the line and some of the things that come up, it's really good to see it on paper. And I do want to get into that going forward. But first, I want to start, and you kind of started alluding to it. You are a writer at heart. You've written books, articles, essays, and you've actually taught a lot of courses on creative writing. And you kind of mentioned this, but I wanted to know a little bit more about your writing process, specifically in this book, kind of how long it took, what the difficulties are, because I really, my bucket list is write a book one day. I know it's out there for a lot of people. The closer I get to doing it, it becomes more difficult. So I just wanted to hear kind of what you did and then what you teach your students about writing. Sure. Um, I, I, my process is built around the periods of the day that I, that I, I feel most generative. And I, uh, that's late morning and kind of mid to late afternoon. So I often will handle emails first thing um, or around lunchtime and whatever else I need to do to you know, stay engaged and stay in the world. And then I kind of go into these mini retreats for five or six hours of the day, ideally. And it depends. Sometimes I'm writing. Sometimes I'm researching. Uh, sometimes I'm sending emails that are, you know, my effort to make outlines. Um, but most Writing practices begin with just that, a practice, uh, something that you do every day. And it might be five minutes. It might be five hours. I actually just saw the great writer Amy Bender, one of the most provocative uh, and, and much-loved uh, writers of, of my generation. And she, she just had twins. And I asked her about her her practice. She said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm writing five minutes a day. She was really serious that, that that's, wow. that's what she can do. And she said, you know, it, it adds up over, <laughs> over time. It adds up. And um, so this book was unusual because it, um, the research was so overwhelming. And unlike a lot of research-driven writers, 
I don't have a kind of clean process for where the research ends and the writing begins. I tend to only know what I need to know as I'm writing, and then I kind of need to drift into to learning more, which might be reading a book. It might mean looking around at things on the web. Uh, it might mean finding the right person to interview. And then I kind of bring that back into the work, and it kind of moves around in a circle, but it's it's kind of a messy circle. I'm also quite messy in that I I am constantly sending drafts to people, um, fragments, ideas. I, I really need a lot of feedback, especially for a book like this, which is, you know, it only works if it's clear and, and, and reaches people. It's not a, a and, and the voice of the book is, is whatever voice works that's, that's kind of instructive and engaging uh, as opposed to a, a lot of literary writing where, where, you know, the, the voice is something more idiosyncratic. I just love kind of getting in the mind of a true writer, you know, somebody who does this for a living on a multitude of topics, because it's one of those professions. It's just, maybe it's just me, but we hear from our listeners. They say the same things. It's hard to understand. It's beautiful. It's agonizing. I, I don't know. There's just a lot of mystery for me specifically. And I think for anyone who sits behind a keyboard or a typewriter or whatever you use, to put thoughts down on paper that are original, that flow, that people like, it's pretty intimate and it's it's scary, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's just like anything. You, you have to go at it over and over and over again. And the clarity emerges over time and, the, you know, the, the beauty might emerge over time. But it's, it tends to, on any given day, it tends to be very ugly. And that's why so much of the work of a writer is just fortitude and in energy, it's like in the beginning of On the Road, the character, uh, the Dean Moriarty character is asking the Sal Paradise character, how can you be a writer? And he says, what do I know about being a writer? Except you have to stick to it like a Benny addict. Uh, <laughs> just this kind of you know relentless pushing forward. And over time, hopefully something emerges that has some, has some value. Absolutely. Well, and one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was you deal a lot in the field of mental health. I mean, I was unaware yeah. um, prior to reading Powers of Two of the book you wrote, Lincoln's Melancholy, which now I have to go back and read that. So thank you for adding another you know, massive novel to my list. But it, it seems fantastic. And then you also you have you do some work at the Carter Center. Uh, you wrote an essay, What Makes Us Happy in the Atlantic, which was you know, extremely successful. I was wondering why that theme and where that came from. Uh, it comes out of personal experience. Originally, I, I was—I have a lot of depression and mental health issues in my family, and I—it's um, been a big part of my story too. And when I was a young reporter in Washington D.C., writing about social policy and politics and all kinds of topics, I found myself wanting to 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 write about this subject that had such uh, a grip on me. I wasn't drawn to write about myself, but I wanted to, I wanted to learn um, about, you know, I wanted to dig into the questions that I was asking myself every day. And the biggest question was, what do I do with the fact that I feel really crappy and I'm also really ambitious? And can those two things coexist? And is there such a thing as uh, achievement and, uh, and, and meaning that is connected to the suffering. And I, I heard about it around this time. I heard about Lincoln 
being a very depressed young man. And it was shocking to me and amazing to me. And I could not, I had a very hard time reconciling that with the Lincoln I knew from the Lincoln Memorial and from the $5 bill and this august, dignified, you know, just um, the apotheosis of the, of the great man in history. And I didn't know how to square that with this, you know, morbid young man who was talking about, he didn't know if he could keep on living. So I, I set out to understand it and, and uh, it turned out there was a big story there to tell um, that for a variety of reasons had never been fully told before. And um, yeah, so that was many years of my life writing Lincoln's Melancholy. And, and as I did that, I also wrote some about um, my own depression, my own experience with psychopharmaceuticals. And then um, the other piece you alluded to, what makes us happy in the Atlantic it grew out of a body of research that I encountered when I was researching the Lincoln book, this uh, series of books written by a psychiatrist named George Valiant, who is the director of a longitudinal study at Harvard that tracked a group of young men from the time they were sophomores at Harvard in the late 30s all the way through their lives. And it, goes, it still is ongoing, and a number of the men are still alive in their 90s. So I, just because I was thinking about this, research over and over again, I, I, I finally approached Dr. Valiant and asked him if he'd be open to my writing about it. And, and um, we ended up negotiating a, uh, a kind of access for me into, the, into these files of these men in, in Boston that had, had never been given to a reporter before. So it was, it was, uh, that was a great adventure. Yeah. And I'm wondering now, because it's been well documented throughout this podcast that early on when I graduated college, I was in a career field that really caused me a lot of stress and anxiety. And as that ramped up, uh, I got depressed over my current situation in the world that I'm going to have to do a job forever that I hate. And, mm. you know, eventually I worked on it. It's been, it, you know, I spent years and years and years. I took years off work, I, you know, all types of stuff. And now for the past couple of years, I've been uh, not only reading and writing on it, but doing coaching and I'm, I'm getting trained as a career counselor because I think a lot of it for me specifically came from lack of understanding what I wanted while I was on this earth. And I uh, had a very large importance in what my career is going to be. And so I'm interested in your research doing, you know, Lincoln's Melancholy, your own experiences, writing this article in The Atlantic. Uh, is there any underlying theme that you found that really helped um, maybe mitigate the depression or push you through and then get to that brighter place? Mm. Sure. I mean, there are a number of systems that have been helpful to me and a number of ideas. The Lincoln book is predicated on this arc that I saw in Lincoln's life from a place of engagement and awareness of suffering, just an acknowledgement of it. Um, a being in it and not denying it, which I hear in your story that you, you know, look, I'm anxious. There's, this is real. This is true. I, I, and, and oftentimes people don't want to just sit still and notice what's happening with themselves, which is where things really need to start. And then the question becomes, all right, I, I know this is happening. What do I, what do I do about it? And, and there's a kind of second phase of bridge building or, um, just active work to try to be in the world around you to treat yourself perhaps, or, or perhaps to change the conditions of your life 
or, or perhaps to um, be of use to other people. And that this middle stage can, if the circumstances are right, and if you, if you do the work hard enough, can lead to a place of a larger sense of meaning or purpose or even, you know, this lofty word transcendence, not transcending the problems of mortality or of suffering, but transcending a limited view of, of the self um, and coming into a place of, of, of service and, and meaning. That's a kind of hero's journey arc that I saw in Lincoln's life, and I think it can apply to any given day. But, you know, there's also the very simple thing right now for me is just one day at a time mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to do the best I can do um, and break the big things down into small chunks and as much as possible pay attention to how I can be of use to others. Um, and, you know, that often includes... Um, being aware of my own, my own stuff, because sometimes a, a way to be of service to others is to be honest about what it, what it's like to be human or to learn the kinds of things that you can only learn when you pay attention to your own thoughts and feelings. And, uh, you know, the writing is a, is a funny, is a funny path for service because it, it might seem very self-absorbed and it can be very self-absorbed, but it, it's actually only worthwhile when, there's a sense of, of giving and of kind of turning one's thoughts into something that's, that, that, that has some kind of value for other people. At least that's my experience. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I, I'm going to be completely honest. As I was reading your newest book, Powers of Two, I, for some reason, and again, maybe it's because it's so close to, to my heart and what I've created with a best friend of mine, but um, it, it did feel like it was a book of service. And I honestly mean that in the sense that as I was going through and understanding it and your writing flows so well that it, it didn't, it wasn't difficult. Oftentimes when I read nonfiction, which is all I read, um, sometimes I feel like I'm struggling through it. Wasn't all the case in your book. And I could just feel almost connections being made in my brain. And then as that was happening, I was getting more creative. Okay, how can I create more with other people? Who do I vibe with? Why? What was that first interaction like? And really, I, I, I felt that. So you did create that in this work, and I don't think it was at all selfish. Well, it's great to hear. I mean, that's the point of the book, and I love you know the, the basic question you asked, which is who do I vibe with? That's where this starts, and in some ways it's where it ends too. I mean – in the sense that, yes, there are many details and questions to face when one is trying to engage with other people creatively. But even when you are, you know, well advanced, it's kind of, you know, deep into the mix with somebody, the question is, what is the vibe like? How does it feel? You know, are you able to move? Are you able to um, rock back on your heels and, and deliver the strongest punch? And, you know, is that other person... Um, is the is the thing you can do together more potent than than what you're able to do without that person and that's that's definitely where this begins yeah it's so interesting i was actually having a conversation with somebody and and telling them oftentimes people ask you know how did you create the podcast how have you been doing it for 4 years how all this stuff and there's plenty of different pieces of advice but the number one thing i do always say is i did it with somebody else i truly mean that and the reason there's a million reasons but for me the, the biggest one was uh, it was much less difficult to quit. Or I'm sorry, it was much more difficult to quit. 
There were days I didn't want to do it. He did. And vice versa. There were ideas I had, you know, and it was that camaraderie that may, I am positive it would not have lasted without two people. And so, again, I think that's one of the powers of of two, if you will. But I, And I wanted to talk about the vibe thing. You call it chemistry in the book. And there's a lot behind that quality. I was hoping you could explain to me and our listeners a little bit more about what you now think of chemistry. Yeah, well, you know, it, it continues to be mysterious to me. Um, the book you know, and the many years of research was aimed at trying to understand just what it is. And I don't think it's fully possible in the same way that we can't fully understand love, but we could describe the the basic characteristics of the people who have chemistry over and over again. And what I found is the foundation is an enormous sense of alignment and rapport and similarity and and the kind of shared interests, values, that's the kind of, that's the floor, or that's the, even beneath the floor, that's the concrete foundation that goes into the earth that allows you to, to, to build something. But then on top of that, there needs to be challenge, there needs to be difference, there needs to be even tension, uh, because creativity is not about being comfortable, it's about, it's about moving from where you are to something different or bigger, and it's often about encountering the Creativity is often about the encounter of, of, of disparate things. So, you know, when someone is taking a traditional form like architecture, but then is inspired by, you know, abstract painting and, and brings those two things together, like Frank Gehry, that, that is what creativity is at its heart. And it's not static, but it can't be too frenetic or too challenging. The, the two things also need a common ground. And so those two things together are the foundation of it. Um, and we see that with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. We see that with John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Uh, we see that over and over again. And now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support Smart People Podcast. All right, smart people. If I were to say you can save money on your cell phone bill, use almost any model of phone, get better coverage, and not have any more contracts, I'm assuming you'd want to hear more. And that's exactly what you get with Ting, one of our favorite sponsors. So how does Ting do it? Well, first off, Ting sits on the Sprint network. So you get amazing Sprint service. And if Sprint doesn't have great coverage wherever you're trying to use your phone, with Ting, it'll automatically switch to Verizon service for talk and text at no additional charge. So not only do you get amazing coverage, but you're almost guaranteed to save money. For example, the average monthly bill on Ting is $21 a month. Don't take my word for it, though. Go to smartpeople.ting.com, and the first page that you will see will be a savings calculator. You type in what you're paying now and about how much you use your phone, and it will instantly tell you exactly how much you'd be saving using Ting today. Another thing I love about Ting is it's a pay-what-you-use model. So say you go on vacation for a month and you don't use your phone at all. Your bill for that month will be $6 which is the maintenance fee for having your your cell number. There's literally no other fees. And with Ting, there are no contracts, no early termination fees. It's basically the way the cell phone industry should work. So go to smartpeople.ting.com, dig around, see how much you'd be saving right now. And if you decide to move forward by going through our link, you'll instantly be credited $25 towards your account. See how much you could save today at smartpeople.ting.com. 
I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you have a design need, whether it's for a logo, website, book cover, t-shirt, sticker, car wrap, or you name it, 99designs is here to help. Head over to 99designs.com smart and start your very own design contest today. Dozens of designers will compete to deliver you the best design. You'll see professional and high-quality results and ultimately receive a design you love. We created a design contest for a Smart People Podcast laptop sticker, and it took about a week. We had a ton of awesome designs, and I was able to ship that off to a sticker maker, and now we'll use the sticker to spread the word about the podcast. We couldn't be any more thrilled. If you have any design needs, please head over to 99designs.com slash smart, and you'll receive a $99 power pack of services for free. We thank you in advance for supporting 99designs, who supports Smart People Podcast. As a Beatles fan, I loved all the stories about John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Can you talk a little about their relationship, how they structured their songwriting credits, and how that ultimately affected their partnership? When John and Paul were teenagers, shortly after they, they met, they decided to co-credit everything they did. And that was the critical thing in the, in the movement from two individuals to a kind of a, a joint creature. And that working with ego and, and finding a way to put your individual ego down and emphasize the collective is every partnership needs to do that in some way, even in a case where one person is you know, much more famous and much more widely represented to the public, he or she, he or she still needs to accept the partner into the process in a way that begins to break down the barriers between the I and the we. John and Paul also had very clear, sharp roles. Uh, it was very clear what Paul's job was in the sense of paying attention to form and structure. And it was very clear what John's job was, which was to be the one who you know, brought in the the surprising kind of associative uh, ideas was always kind of pushing up against tradition and form, but they also could switch roles. So it had a very fluid dynamic there. And the other themes of the book, um, they all show up with John and Paul, which is part of the reason why I spent so much time on them. They, they, they really illustrate all the basic themes. The last two that I'll mention are distance, finding, finding that, appropriate space for your partner so you can continue to nourish your individuality even in the context of this combination and tension or challenge or even competition and rivalry which was a huge part of the Lennon McCartney story it was often often Lennon and McCartney was Lennon versus McCartney I don't think I ever realized that well you know we we tend to mistake kind of enmity or hostility even for something that's antisocial when a lot of times just like in a football game, you know, you have two guys at the line of scrimmage and they're pushing against each other. And yeah, they're both trying to push the other guy back, but they're also depending on each other and they're playing the same game. And a lot of times it's sort of the bigger games that creative people play together involves these little games of, of pushing against each other, trying to beat each other, trying to match the other. And that is, you know, one of the major revelations of the book, I think, is that one needs to welcome this uh, this energy rather than than be afraid of it. That's one of the things about creative pairs in general, and I, I know it in in terms of my relationship with John when we're working on the podcast. There's that tension that can be a good thing. It also can be difficult, and 
as you talk on, talk about in the book, there's a lot of things that can happen in a creative pair that you know go awry and oftentimes can lead to an ending, if you will, of that partnership that's anything but clean. What is that? What does that do to? What did you find? Yeah, it's very delicate. Um, you know, it's just like um, any kind of life form. You know, there there are lots of things that can throw it off, and the very things that give a pair its power you know, can also bring it harm. The image that I use in the book is the stumble. And I, I like the image of a stumble because you only stumble when you're going somewhere, when you're moving. And it's often the same forces that have you moving. If you're, you know, walking down the way and, and it's that movement, it's that instability of that movement that makes you vulnerable to fall. And very often the very dynamics that are at the heart of what make a pair great with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, it was this kind of fierce sense of, yeah, I'm part of this thing that's bigger than me, but I'm also going to advocate for, for, for what's mine and what I believe. And that got uh, to be a point of real trouble for them, but it only w- was, uh, was deadly when it became combined with this other factor, which is a pair is vulnerable. It, a pair is dependent on the environment around it, and it's also vulnerable to changes or to instabilities in that environment. And a lot of times the way a pair does its best work together is by, and that work is often enormously um, volatile, but that volatility is often enabled by a lot of safety and and, and stability kind of around them. So you often will see a great creative pair like Lennon and McCartney who have a terrific manager, have a terrific terrific producer, um, which they did in both those cases except when Brian Epstein, their manager, died in 1967, it, was, it really opened up a vacuum around them. And there were a whole series of, of, ch- of changes in their environment that unfolded. And I think that that's the critical story in their, um, you know, their most difficult times. And yet, at the same time, I don't think it's true to really call it a breakup or a final split because they needed time apart but I don't think either one of them felt that he was done with the other guy. Mm-hmm. And had John Lennon lived, it seems quite likely that there there would have been a reunion. Yeah, that would have been something to behold. Oh, you know, that's a shame. And and on the topic of kind of the difficulty of of creative pairs, I was wondering if different personalities can be one person's creative pair. So what I'm asking is, can I myself? have a creative pair in one area of my life with somebody who's completely different than a creative pair in another area or project of my yeah, life. Absolutely. I mean, I am a writer and I depend on editors, but there are times when I am the editor working with a writer, I often am, you know, doing public events that other people organize and I have a very particular role to sort of be the star of my little show but there are other times when I'm the curator and I'm thinking about the arc of the whole day and I'm making sure that the people who are the star of the show um, have what they need. And I'm thinking about the interaction between them and the audience and often all the logistics. And at any given point, you know, the important thing is, are you occupying this kind of dialogical exchange uh, that is that, that makes creativity happen between being original and and being traditional between form and, and, and structure and really vibrant content between a big dream and a, and, and, a, and a really powerful execution. All these are different ways of talking about the dynamics that go into the heart of creativity. 
And you might occupy a variety of positions. So long as you're in that engagement, I think you're, you're, you're in the heart of the work. Again, I, I read something. I can't remember if it was in your book or if it was somewhere else while I was kind of researching it, where the mention came of a creative pair is, is so useful in the same sense that oftentimes when we're thinking and we're internalizing things, we're really having a conversation with ourselves. So it ends up kind of being like a, a pair in a sense. And I found that very interesting. Well, you know, people will try to analyze their own thoughts from different perspectives. And it's a way of seeking input from somewhere else. It's just, in that case, not another person. The idea of conversation, which you can see physically, viscerally between two people, if you imagine John Lennon and Paul McCartney talking, that does become a, a way to help us imagine or illustrate or model what happens in the head. So that is really the, the, the big idea of this book is not just about actual physical pairs of two people, but about this larger idea of creativity being about exchange. And, and yeah, it often is in your head and often the conversation in your head has been shaped and affected by the conversations you've had with other people, um, teachers, you know, mentors, early influences. Um, and then the conversation in your head can yield something which goes out to another person and that continues that external conversation. Uh, and the movement between the external and the internal is so much of what creativity is about. Uh, and that's why we really need to let go of the myth that solitude is in opposition with collaboration. In fact, solitude uh, as a creative experience often depends on an appropriate amount of social connection around one's work. And collaboration really only does well when people have sufficient amounts of a sense of themselves and an and actual you know, time and space, whatever that looks like for them, to articulate themselves. Um, the worst thing you can do for a lot of people is say, all right, you go into that room and there are going to be a bunch of chattering heads around you and, you and you never get out until you do your work. Very often it's, the, it's, it's yeah, you've got to go into the room and mix it up and kind of get a sense of, the, of, of, you know, of what you all are doing there, but then you often need to go off on your own to do some piece of it, to tinker with it, to think about it. That's definitely the case with Lennon and McCartney, that they initiated a lot of things separately and they would play with ideas and kind of take it as far as they could and then they would bring it to the other and, and move the ball down the field. Absolutely. And that's a theme in your book with, you know, solitude being important, but not the only way to create or be, you know, be a genius in something or really, truly create something. I see it all the time when I'm coaching people in the hour long session we might have, you know, they, they might not grasp it or it might unlock something, but they're not sure. And then a week or two later, we'll be talking and you just hear how the light bulb clicked at some moment throughout that week. And it's very similar. You have these conversations, you work in these partnerships, there's these dynamics and tensions, you go home and internalize them, and then boom, that's when the idea comes. Yeah, I, I like that image a lot. And it's, um, it's interesting, you know, as a teacher, you, you, you need to be direct and, and, and energetic and caring and even forceful at times, but you also have to be really humble. You offer what you can, and then you, you see, can the student do it? It's the same with an editor. You know, An editor can't write the book for an author. He, he can ask the right questions. He can 
you know, um, have uh, a supportive attitude or a challenging attitude. He can do a lot of things, but the writer has to do the job that only the writer can do. So a lot of what you get from studying collaboration is a real sense of um, a real sense of uh, the kind of the necessity of individual engagement. And one of the powerful things about a pair, as opposed to even a group as small as three, is that everybody's got to show up if a pair is going to have any vitality. You might have three people in a room and it really seems like something great is happening and one of them is totally phoning it in. Mm. Um, whereas in a pair, if, if one person is phoning it in, it becomes immediately apparent and the pair ceases to function as anything creative. I, I can completely understand that. And now one of the things, and I know we're wrapping up here, I really wanted to cover because for my own knowledge, but also for everybody listening, we understand now that creative pairs work. There's a number of um, examples in your book and being part of a creative pair seems incredible, but I want to be able to help people find the other half of their pair what advice do you have for people on how to find their pair and, and where to go? I know you talk about a magnet place. What's the biggest thing for you? I love the question, but I, I want to ask you to make it a little more specific. Sure. Or you could even give me a couple of scenarios because it it does – you need to address people where they are. So where sure. would you like me to – Give me, give me a scenario. Absolutely. No, it's perfect. And I'll use my scenario. Um, I'm always creating. I love creating and I truly rely on other people. I have a tough time doing things on my own for a number of reasons. But if you're in that stage of creativity, whether you have an idea, you've started an idea, but you know you need other people for the reasons we've just outlined and just you internally know that, how do you begin thinking, where can I find help? Where are people that might align with my values? Where, who and where can I go that's going to really bring out the best in me? Okay. Well, I have a couple thoughts. Number one, uh, overwhelming commonality in meeting stories between great creative pairs is they're introduced. So if you, um, you know, know that you want to write a book and you're looking for, uh, let's say you're looking for a freelance editor, someone that you can, you know, bounce drafts off of uh, to develop a, a, a book idea to the point where you can take it to a professional agent. Um, so maybe you don't know an editor, but you know, um, you know, writers that you admire, or, you know, uh, you know, someone who works at a newspaper and, and might be, um, you know, might have some suggestions So following, following the, the, the links of social exchange sort of down the line. And it turns out that there's this idea of six degrees of separation, which most people know through six degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> it actually is true, and there there's there have been studies that demonstrate how few links separate us from the whole world. So, virtually all of Facebook. Last time they did this study, I, I think it was somewhere between four and five degrees. It was four and change degrees uh, that separated any given Facebook user from any other Facebook user. So the question is, all right, who do I know who I could talk to who might compliment me? Oh, I don't know, but I know someone who might know and follow that out. And the other thing is just really basic, but it was suggested to me by what you said is that you should get clear about roles. I think that's implicit in, in, in actually the first answer I gave you. And I imagine, you know, a writer and an editor or for me right now, I'm very aware that I have a certain um, ability to perform, to think of big ideas, 
Um, and I, I, I love thinking about story and I, I, I have a big imagination, but I, I'm often weaker on executing, on organizing lists, on you know uh, taking care of the details that are totally totally necessary for, for any big idea to, to be enacted. And so I'm really looking in my life for people who are naturally organized, who are naturally uh, drawn to systems, um, and I'm and I'm aware that. You know, there will be some kind of, of, of gap between the way I think and the way that other person thinks. And I'm really welcoming that into my life because I, um, I need a lot of help. And these big relationships, you know, the, the, the epic ones all involve an element of chance. But you can prepare yourself for that chance. You know, they say luck is the residue of design. And you can, you can prepare yourself to be lucky by asking the right questions. Uh, and, and I think that, that, you know, great things can materialize if we, if we, if we get in that, if we get in that headspace. Yeah. And I'm, I really appreciate that. Everything you were talking about resonates. I look at the way John and I created the podcast and how it couldn't have been done without either person in the pair, because I don't have the technical capabilities and I don't know if John would have executed on it. So it was just so, and I think that happens so often um, I really appreciate it. I love the book, Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. I wanted to see uh, if you could tell our listeners where they can find you, um, places to go, your writing, anything that you want to let them know about. My website is shank.net. It's S-H-E-N-K.net. I'd love to hear from folks. Uh, there's links to places to buy the book and all the other press I've done and reviews and so forth and uh, whatever else of my writing can be either bought uh, in book form or, or read online. Uh, I'm also writing a, I'm writing an advice column on creative relationships and I'm glad to take people's questions. Oh, wow. There's a way to contact me through my website. Um, and that's a lot of fun for me. So I'd love to hear from anyone who's interested. Believe me, I'll be, I'll probably be uh, asking you for that advice. <laughs> Please do. I, I, I'm, I'm looking for material. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, I'm also glad if, if people don't know like exactly what the question is, I'm glad to, to have an exchange to try to tease it out and just sort of hear uh, what your story is and what kinds of things you're asking. And often the, the question kind of emerges from that, from that conversation. Absolutely. And do you talk to people on Twitter at all or is that not something you do? I do. I, I am on Twitter and it's at Joshua Wolfshank. There's a, also a link from my website. I just joined Instagram at the instigation of my niece and nephew. Um, and, uh, what else? Facebook. Uh, if you just search my name, you'll find sure. it. And there's a, there is a powers of two page where we're posting a lot of original content and eventually going to move that into a regular blog. Um, but for now it's, it's living on Facebook. Sure. No, and that's great. Cause, and we'll put a link to, to all that stuff at uh, the post we write on smartpeoplepodcast.com because often, oftentimes people tweet and they'll you know put your handle in there just to once they hear you on the show. So I figured that's a good way. Well, Josh, uh, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. I, I, it was great talking to you and um, I look forward to talking with you more in the future. Same here. And yeah, please stay in touch. Absolutely. All right. Have a good day. Same to you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Josh Shank. His book, Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation and Creative Pairs, can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. You can read more of what Josh puts out into the world at shank.net 
or if you want to contact him on Twitter, it's at Joshua Wolfshank. Don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter as well, at SmartPeoplePod, or if you want to send us a good old-fashioned email, you can send it to SmartPeoplePodcast at gmail.com. If you guys enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a review for us there. It helps out the show immensely, and we truly do appreciate it. Just as a reminder, we recently got laptop stickers made, so we're going to figure out a way to send those out to our listeners. So if you want one of those, hit us up on Twitter, let us know, and we'll see what we can do. See you guys next week.